Good morning. It's nice to be with you all. We'll be in Psalm 1, Psalm chapter 1. At Christ the King in Belfast, we're, we're on Psalm 5 today. And we're, we've just started working our way through the book. And so we'll be here for some number of years, we imagine. Uh, and so far it's been really rewarding and nourishing. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked shall perish. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and open your word to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1 and 2 are thought to be introductory psalms. If you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, you're getting a handle for how to read the book of Psalms or realistically how to sing the Psalms and how to be changed by the divine poetry. So it's its own genre. It's a poetic genre. It's different than just um, an epistle. And so something is to happen imaginatively when we come to the Psalms so that in the course of learning the songs... According to the structure, the imaginative structure, the word of God in this arena shapes us into a new pattern. And as we get shaped into this new pattern, we learn to think expressively of where we're at, our own emotions. Think of Jesus on the cross singing Psalm 22. This is his songbook that he grew up singing. It's not just songs that he would grab at birthday parties or at funerals, but that the Psalms themselves themselves shape the hearts and minds and the imaginations of the people of God. And so when we think about, as we'll see today, getting up in the morning or going down to bed and we find ourselves in seasons of valleys or mountaintops or we find ourselves at the beginning of a good season or looking at the end of a hard season when we're first starting out or when we're dying, the sacred poetry of the Psalms dominates the landscape and and shapes the believer into thinking, I know this terrain, I know what to sing here. And we draw on the Psalms as Christians, as the people of God have done for thousands of years. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 teach us the forms and teach us how to engage the book and what will happen throughout the rest of the book. If you were to boil down Psalm 1, You'd end up with two solid thoughts. You'd end up with two lines. 
And these contained lines, these contained thoughts in, in the poetry are called strophes. These are the complete thoughts. And when we take the Hebrew poetic device of parallelism into account, parallelisms um, are rampant throughout the book and, and show up in varied manners. We see a thought complemented in the parallelism. A thought is complemented, rephrased, or even opposed with the equally true counterpoint. In this chapter, the first psalm, there are two thoughts. The way of the righteous and the way of the, the opposing way of the wicked. If the strophe is the first initiating thought, the counterpoint is called the antistrophe. Antistrophe. Strophe literally means line. You could think of derivatives we have in the English language. Kata, strophe, a line that comes down on us. Apo, strophe, apostrophe, a line that goes away from, right? So for years, the people of God, God's covenant people, believers of every era, since the reign of David, have allowed the form of the Psalms to shape the way in which we worship. Possibly you've been in a church where the Psalms have been read in a call and response fashion. Maybe out of the back of the hymnal. That's not an invention. It's an ancient practice. It's the form of the Psalms telling us what to do. And so the call and response is that God initiates and the people respond. It's male and female. Male initiates, the feminine responds. This is in the poetry. The bride of Christ responds to what God says. Even in the service now, we call it a call to worship. Who's calling you to worship? God. God calls his people to come worship him. And the bride responds. And that's the form that we see in the Psalms shaping us poetically. And the parallelisms work this way. Whether they're supporting parallelisms, the antistrophe is supporting, or it supports in its contrast. Not so wicked, Lord. Right? That's a the righteous, the wise, not so the wicked. But there's different kinds. The minister would call the initiating line like this from Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. And the response is sort of the feminine echo, and it's here throughout the entire book, all over the place. And you'll see it, when you start to look for it, you'll see it throughout Scripture. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. Next line. And in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the way it'll go, over and over and over. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. Thou shalt make known wisdom. So it's purposefully a rhythm-shaping structure. Here in Psalm 1, we boil it all down and we get stock from it, made of these six verses, and it would proclaim this. There's a way of the righteous man and there's a way of a wicked man. So with that, let's look at these. In verse 1, Blessed is the man... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The man who has determined to not, counsel, to not follow the counsel of the wicked. The man who doesn't place himself amongst those who are busy with sin. The man who doesn't take his rest 
with those who mock the things of the Lord. This is a blessed man. That's the beginning of the book, the songbook, God's people, the songbook of God's people. This psalm and then the next one, which function as an introduction to everything that the psalms will do, are setting you up for a left hand and a right hand approach to how to think about the world in which you live, the world in which you will walk, stand and sit. The parallelism between the righteous man and the wicked man should be first and foremost understood as the difference between the first Adam and the final Adam. When you hear in the Psalms or anywhere in scriptures, the man who does right, that's a a shadow of Jesus or it's a photograph of Jesus, but your mind should go to Jesus. Who's the man that does right? None. None on earth. Well, one. And that's how we should be learning to think. The man who does right. We know from Romans, you know, from Revelation, John weeps because the horizon has no one who's able to open the scroll. There's no one. There's one. And then there's all who are in him. And then there's this other man, this first Adam, and there's all who are in him. And that's what the scripture teaches us. And so we begin to think rightly about what it means to be human, what Christ has accomplished in creating a new line, a new creation. The first Adam and the final Adam are contrasted here. A man who has given the word of God and it stands there in front of him in the form of obedience. And, and if you follow it through, you get fruit and you get life. If you don't, the universe collapses. It is death on all sides. You swallow the blackness. And the first Adam disobeys and all who are in him fell with him. Not so the final Adam. Jesus is the righteous man. And because of that, those who are in his line, who are in him, are able now to be declared righteous and to function in righteousness. You've been freed up to obey. You were in bondage to sin priorly. You are free to obey now because of this work. First, Adam sinned. All who, in, who are in him are dead in their sins, we're told. That's the way of the person who rejects the word of God. The commandments of God is a way of death. The man and woman of God can judge and discern clearly now if they're in this line of this wise man, this Jesus We can discern and judge rightly, as we'll see in this text, because of the righteousness of Christ keeping the word of God on our behalf even and for the glory of God. Faith in Christ opens up the possibility of obedience for us and thusly of all the good fruit and the life that comes in with obedience. 
Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a believer. He's a Christian. And Jeremiah has purposed, he says, to not cast his lot with those who reject God. How do you know? What do they say about what God has said? And what do they do about what God has said? Jeremiah sees them and says, I will not cast, I won't sit with them. I won't stand with them. I won't walk with them. Listen to Jeremiah fifteen seventeen. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. Why is he angry? Because people are mocking the things of the Lord. Where does that anger come from? That anger comes from God. Because first Adam's kids aren't born hating sin. We're born loving sin. We're born hating God. It's the mercy of God, the gift of God. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. That you heard the word of God. That you heard the commandment to repent and believe. That you heard God be, God's word being preached. And God in his mercy and compassion maybe turned your heart to his word. Even, at, even as far back as you can remember. Praise God. To hate sin is a gift from God. Verse 2. Psalm 1 verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. This is the blessed man. This is the wise man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. We should note that for the new covenant believer, the law or the instruction of the Lord is the entire Bible. Not just the Sinaitic tablets. It's the entire Bible. Think of 1 Timothy and what it says of Scripture. Think of Jesus, the Great Commission. Baptize them, make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey me. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Why do you say you love me, but you do not keep my commandments? That's New Testament. Now think back for a minute. If, if you read uh, regular readings throughout Advent, remember Jesus' 12th Passover in Jerusalem as a young boy. His answer to his mother when they're panic-stricken, not being able to find him. He's, the Messiah is lost to them for three whole days. That's what happened. His answer to his mother was that he had to be doing the will of his father. And that began by him constantly sitting there and hearing God's word. I have to do the will of my father. What was he doing? He was listening to God's word being preached. He delighted in it. He delighted in the word of God being taught to him. It's very honest to say that his being instructed in the law of the Lord was his delight. It's true of this man, Jesus. Augustine points out, if we're going to use the poetic terms the way Scripture uses them everywhere else outside the Psalms, that when we hear the poetry teaching us a rhythm of day and night, morning and evening, and it is rampant in the Psalms, we don't want to only think cereal and PJs. You don't want to only think literally morning and evening. You want to think about morning and evening the way the poetry teaches us to think about morning and evening. 
Little babies are waking up. Old men are laying down to sleep. That's how the Bible uses it. The day is the time of rejoicing, Augustine says. As that which Abraham saw of Jesus was his day. And he rejoiced in it. And the night is often used as a metaphor for sorrow and for a time of weeping and a time when your lights go out. We'd be instructed in the word both in the morning and in the night, Augustine says. That's what we're learning is the way of wisdom. To, to be instructed by the Lord and to delight in it, whether it is morning or evening, in every sense of the word. Learning at the feet of the Spirit's poetry, we should hear as well that the righteous man or woman will take pleasure in being instructed by God's word, whether the season is abounding or wanting. We're still learning this one single thought here. There's this one hand. Here's the righteous man. Verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And here's where we see the work of Jesus coming clearly to the fore. The Adamic story. The first Adam. Eden. Centered on a tree planted by streams of water. Four streams, to be exact. The Spirit uses this Edenic creation, new creation motif throughout the entire Bible. In the garden, there were two trees that are focused on. The two trees that are focused on. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is an ability to judge and discern rightly. And a tree of life. Now the Edenic creation garden motif here in the songbook. Right at the beginning. Is conflated. Both of the trees are conflated into one tree. What does the tree do? It gives wisdom. This is the wise man's tree. And it's life giving. This is the tree. It's the fruit of wisdom and life. Which is to follow the Lord. And wisdom and knowledge and life are wrapped up in this image of this tree. Both of these things, the ability to judge rightly and life, both of these things were either broken in us or kept from us in the first garden. Jesus, the final Adam, did not go the route of disobedience. He rather went the route of obedience And because of his obedience, he gained for us what we lost or what was broken. This is the righteous man. Life and fruit are found in him. That's what the spirit produces in believers. Fruit bearing tree. That's that's the work of the spirit in us. Those who are in the new Adam. Life eternal. And then this Solomonic vision of a man who receives wisdom rather than loses it keeps going throughout the scriptures. This poetry, these pieces of furniture are to stay in our minds, in our imaginations as we think about the world. I was at, the, I, I was at a bar with my little boys 
a few months back, and it was some kid's 21st birthday. And we were sitting at this booth eating dinner, and these guys drag their friend out. He's blacked out. And they're, they're a guy on each side, and somebody else is carrying all his stuff. And they're like, it's his 21st birthday. Woo! And I made my boys put their food. I said, I need you to look at this. Look over here. That's a fool. That's a fool who loves death. Look at him. Can't even open his eyes. His friends are carrying him out to his car. He'd be robbed and killed if this were another country. He's a fool. We need to look at it and see it. Because it's all around us. Withered up trees, fruitlessness, death. And the righteous man, the righteous woman, the righteous boy and girl are supposed to have their eyes open and their imagination baptized. So that we know how to think about this. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs 3. This is David's son, and he's using this. This imaginative sacred furniture is in there, and he's using it as he looks at the world by the movement of the Spirit. This is Scripture. Proverbs 3, verse 13. Happy is the man that finds wisdom, and the man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver. In the game thereof, then find gold. She is more precious than rubies. Remember, wisdom is personified as a woman in Proverbs. She's more precious than rubies. All and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared to her. Like what? Length of days is in her right hand. Life. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. Pleasantness. And all her paths Our peace, what is she? She's a tree of life. She's a tree of life. To whom? To them that lay hold upon her. And happy is everyone that retaineth her. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth and by understanding, by wisdom, he hath established the heavens. This is the the DNA code of creation. Wisdom. There's no way to access these trees here in Psalm 1. They're gathered into one tree. There's no way to access them. Eternal life and perfect wisdom apart from abiding in Christ. And having union with him. It's the only way to bear fruit. As we've heard our Lord instruct. Remember, Solomon elsewhere has labeled all things as withering, as fading from grass to human life, to notoriety, to wealth. It's fading. It's yellowing grass. It's late November first frost. Everything. Except one thing. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. In distinction, contradistinction, in the parallelism, everything's yellowing, not the word, it's evergreen. Everything's fading, not the word, it's eternal. It's poetic, scripture. He's a man, this tells us something about this man. He's a man who lives in the word of God. Because the word alone will abide forever. 
The word alone will never wither or fade. And Jesus Christ is called the word of God. The second person of the Trinity. And so those who abide in him, abide in the word of God, will not wither or fade by necessity. By necessity. They are men and women and boys and girls who live their lives, live, have life by abiding in the word. We are called people who have passed from death into life. That's the first resurrection. Passed from death into life already by faith in Jesus Christ. We have passed from death into life and we live now in the word. We live there. He is the fruit-bearing tree that we abide in and bear much fruit. He's the word of God that we in and live because we are in him. Jesus Christ, the one who not only loved and delighted God's word, but was and is and always will be God's word. Verse 4, here's the other hand. Here's the other line. Here's the wicked man. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now the contrasting strophe of the parallelism begins. None of these blessings are given to those who reject the way of the Lord. Could they be? There's no life outside of him. A church father from the 300s, um, his, uh, his rap name was the Hammer of the Aryans. That's what he went by. Hillary of Poitiers, he says this, the ungodly have no possible hope of having the image of the happy tree applied to them. The only lot that awaits them is one of wandering and winnowing, crushing, dispersion and unrest, shaken out of the solid framework of their bodily condition. They must be swept away to punishment in dust and become a plaything of the wind. They will not be dissolved into nothing, for punishment must find in them some stuff to work on, but ground into particles imponderable, unsubstantial, dry. They'll be tossed to and fro and make sport for the punishment that gives them no rest. He goes on and says, this, is, this image keeps popping up in the psalm. Psalm 18, it keeps going. Is that too rough? Is that too much negativity? It can't be a dust that ends up being ground into nothing because the grinding has to keep going on. Jeez Louise. That's a bit much. Does it feel like it's excessive? And if so, we may have a clue as to why we're silent while the world around us slips into a Christless eternity. Because our issue isn't with Hillary of Poitiers. It's not because his words are too coarse or absent of grace. But Psalm 1 could be no help to us because our issue is with the blinding light of the holiness of God being too much. Listen to verse 5. The psalm continues. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Standing, I won't stand, they won't stand. There's all these parallelisms and structures that go throughout the entire thing. We won't spend all of our time on this, but it's 
It's beautiful. It's worth our time to learn at the feet of the Psalms. Jerome says there's a reversal of roles now in the psalm. In the beginning of the chapter, it was the righteous man who wasn't standing. And he wasn't standing in the way of sinners. And now it's the wicked man who's not standing. But he's not standing where? In the judgment. Another way of saying this line is that the wicked shall not rise again in judgment. That's some of the translations. The wicked shall not rise again in judgment. And this means that upon being judged, they're not called forward to come out of their condemnation. As Christ has said, those who did not believe are condemned already. And in condemnation, they will stay if they reject the way of life. John 3. There will be no ongoing practitioners of sin who will stand among the congregation of the righteous. And the, and the righteous don't stand amongst the wicked. Subjects, they prostrate before the king until the king extends favor and bids them rise. That's what we see in Scripture. Verse 6. Why? How do we know? For the Lord, because, because the Lord, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The way of the wicked shall perish. The great hope of First Corinthians 8 that Paul puts forward is that if anyone loves God, he's known by God. This is a source of hope, he says. If anyone loves God, he, God knows him. If I, walk, if I walk into a room and I go, oh, wow, it's Justin Bieber. That's cool, right? That's one thing. But if Justin Bieber goes, Garrett, come sit with me. It's like, whoo, yeah. It's a different thing to be known by greatness than it is to know which way's up. This is contrasted with the person who's vain in their supposed knowledge. The one who believes himself to be wise but is only prideful. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked shall perish. This is the last thought that is a parallelism within itself to close the psalm. The point is that life will keep on going for those who love the Lord. Life and life more abundantly. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he just keeps on living. The soul is saved. Here, Garrett's eyes close, but Garrett doesn't stop having self-awareness. What's going on? My, my computer's shutting down. That's what, is, that's what happens in the, for the believer in death. Garrett knows the body's shutting down. Garrett's not shutting down. Why? The soul is saved. And it's not, unfortunately, the wicked don't have nihilism as the alternative. It's like we say life eternal with the Lord. And it's a kind of it's a kind of poetic structure. We need to know that it's kind of a death eternal for the wicked. 
Only deaf and dying and deaf and dying and deaf and dying await those who reject the way of the Lord. Notice as well that this is the way of the wicked that perishes. It's the way of the wicked that will come to an end. And that's to let us know that in this way, it's not the wicked themselves that will come to an end in in the way of obliteration, annihilation. Because it's warned against constantly in Scripture that the consequences of rejecting the word of the Lord are eternal. The way of the wicked is over and done with. It will perish. And we need to think this way in reference to the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. The great hope in this is that those who reject the way of the Lord are a dying breed. They're destined to become men without countries. If we read the promise to Abraham right through to Revelation. All the nations of the world have become the nation of our God and of his Christ. The way of the wicked will be an anachronism. The trade, the wicked ply, does not go into the future. They're telephone operators and delivery milkmen. It's a thing of the past. And the wicked, soberly, the wicked abide, but in condemnation. There's a single epicenter at which the psalm comes to rest. The righteous and the wicked. There's a single epicenter here, and it's the cross of Christ. And we know it's the cross of Christ for this reason. Vast hordes, oceans, teams and teams of wicked and not one speck of righteousness on the horizon. Apart from a little lamb that makes its way to the fore and ends up as a lion in John's vision. But for a long time, it's silence. It's the Valley of Elah before David shows up with Lunchables. Anybody? Anybody? Crickets. Hordes and hordes and hordes of wicked. And then the way of the righteous meeting on the cross of Christ. The hordes of the wicked and the singular righteous man meeting. God and man. This is the tablet of the law, right? God and others. We receive love from God. We give love to God. And the second is like it. You love others. It's the cross. The righteousness of God and the sinfulness of all men meeting on the cross. The work is done by him on our behalf. Not simply so that we might not perish. And we will not perish if we're in Jesus Christ. But so that we might have abundant life. Life on top of life, pushed down and 
spilling out of the cup life and eternal life, never ending life, which Jesus says in John 17, 3 is knowing him. That's the glorious picture of the psalm, the righteous man or woman who abides in Christ living and bearing fruit. They will not wither. They will not pass away. They will abide forever, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, because the righteous man, the word of God, has done it. Praise him accordingly and walk in his way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.